Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Lara May, a clinical pharmacist specializing in functional medicine, as well as a certified yoga teacher and Reiki master. I run a truly integrative health coaching practice, encompassing functional medicine lab testing, yoga and meditation, and a sprinkling of Reiki energy medicine. Join me here on Light Body Radio to break through your health plateau and come into alignment with your natural vitality. Hello and welcome to Light Body Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lara May, and today I have with me Morgan Adams. She is a holistic sleep coach for women who struggle with getting a good night's sleep consistently, which I think is a big deal for so many of us out there. Uh, her goal is to help women feel better, live better, and the key to both begins with a good night's sleep. Morgan is also a former insomniac herself who spent almost a decade using prescription sleeping pills, despite knowing that her overall sleep quality suffered. She's also a two-time breast cancer survivor who advocates for a lifestyle of disease prevention and integrating holistic strategies for cancer treatment. That's, I'm really fascinated to hear your story. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you so much, Lara. It's nice to be here. So sort of tell us uh, about your journey and how you came to be, you know, a, a sleep specialist and, you know, how that unfolded for you. Yeah. So probably about 18 years ago, I was dealing with a really bad insomnia situation personally. So I was going through some relationship challenges, which I, I won't spill the beans on any of that, but basically what it did is it created this really um, anxiety ridden situation for me where I would basically lie in bed for up to two hours, most nights waiting for sleep to come. And after a couple months of this, it got really old and I decided to, to um, get in touch with my doctor about it. And I was given Ambien to take. And at the time I was actually a pharmaceutical sales rep. So pills Mm. were part of my daily experience, you know, marketing Mm -hmm. them. Um, And so when I was given this prescription for Ambien, I didn't think twice about it. I was like, I trust the doctor, I trust the medication, and I'm going to take it because I Mm -hmm. don't know of any other way to deal with my sleep issues other than to take something. So the pill actually helped me get to sleep sooner. You know, it did, did what it said it would do. It got me to sleep sooner. However, the next day's side effects were less than desirable, I will say. So um, we can talk more about that later, but um, took them for eight years, dealt with the side effects. um, And then after that eight year point, I met my current husband, who was then my new boyfriend. And he said something to me in in a loving way, but in a very kind of like, you know, this is the deal kind of thing. He said, it really freaks me out when you take those pills because you act like a zombie. You're not, you're not yourself. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, he's right. Like I have to like do something about getting off these pills. So I did something that I don't advise anybody out there to do. I, I, I did it myself. Um, so what Mm -hmm. I did was I just cut the pills, um, into smaller increments and weaned myself I did a taper and that's mm-hmm. really the way to do it. But it I, didn't, I didn't consult my doctor. So, mm-hmm. and I also didn't have any 
other support. So for all of the people who are doing, maybe potentially taking sleeping pills, the really more appropriate way to do it is to consult with your prescribing provider to get a taper schedule. And then ideally hire someone like me, like a sleep coach who can give you that support and accountability because it's not easy for everyone. It can be really a very trying time. Um, So fortunately I was a, it was pretty smooth sailing for me and I got my sleep back to, you know, a pretty decent level and then slept well for years. But then there was a plot twist and that plot twist was something that we all experienced collectively back in 2020, March of 2020, when the pandemic started, nobody knew which way was up. And Mm -hmm. I started having some sleeping issues again. And I got really concerned because I didn't want to go down that road of full-blown insomnia again. So I started getting on Google, looking up, you know, how to sleep better. I bought an aura ring to track my sleep. And in pretty short order, I got things normalized. But I got so interested in this whole topic of sleep and like how easy it was to get it back on track. So I started to just organically share things on Facebook about what I'd been doing. And I came to find out at that time that there were a lot of other people struggling with their sleep during this time. Mm-hmm. And I had since 2018, and during my first breast cancer diagnosis, I really felt like my mission in life was to help women with their health in some way, shape or form. But I actually wasn't sure how that would play out. And then when I found sleep, I just thought, oh my gosh, there's so many women struggling with sleep. I've conquered my own sleep. I feel passionately about this. This is going to be my new profession. So from that that point on, it was just like a flurry of study and certifications and um, credentialing. Um, So I spent about a year doing all that and then started my sleep coaching practice in 2021. So it's been a Little, a little bit of a bumpy ride to get here, but that's how I got here. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you said so many different aspects, uh, especially, I mean, we could start with the side effects of Ambien specifically. I'm um, being a pharmacist. I am familiar with them. I've heard feedback from many uh, patients, both in my Western medicine life and my functional medicine life as to, because, you know, Ambien is one of, one of the many of a menagerie out there. I think a lot of people also, you know, take Benadryl way too much to help them sleep. So anything that you're taking, uh, even sometimes herbs, you know, will still have those side effects of waking up groggy actually disrupting your sleep cycle. So like ambient specifically can give you crazy dreams. You can even sleepwalk through it. Um, you know, do you want to speak to that a little bit? I can definitely speak to all that. So (laughs) when I, when I took Ambien, I did have some issues sometimes right after I took it. So I would do like binge eating episodes. Um, there are people out there who do things that are worse than binging. Um, there's, you know, online shopping, there's driving, there's all sorts of things. And what happened because of all these unfortunate events is that they put a black box warning on these categories of drugs in 2019, Mm -hmm. because they were so potentially dangerous, you know, the, obviously the driving very dangerous. Um, 
So 80% of people who are taking this class of drug do end up having next day residual side effects like grogginess, trouble getting out of bed, trouble focusing. That played out for me big time um, in my day job. I was working at, um, in a position where I had to write very quickly, like a press release when something went down. And there were times when I was just frozen at the keyboard. I just could not produce the words because I really didn't feel alert and ready to function until close to lunchtime. So like almost Mm -hmm. half my day was gone by the time the side effects wore off. Well, come to find out later in all of my research on these medications, back in 2013, the makers of Ambien were made to change their dosing um, requirement for women because what was Mm -hmm. happening was women were being overdosed. So essentially during this whole stretch of time that I was taking Ambien, I was being overdosed. So that's extremely scary. Well, and I'll Um, say that I'm going to interrupt you there just since um, with that. So when the drug was originally approved, it was approved for five and a 10 milligram immediate release formulation. They now have a controlled release, but you're right. The studies originally didn't um, separate out those groups and study them. So after market studies, we realized that women really functioned better with a lower dose they came out with a suggestion I don't know how many physicians still follow that because I still see so many women on that higher dose and the also too I think something to keep in mind is tolerance and this is also the case with benzodiazepines so Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, uh, Librium, I'm using brand names here so people might recognize them more. But, um, you know, it's same, you know, like you st- even if you start on a low dose, once you take them over a course of longer period of time, your body, you know, develops a tolerance to that neurotransmitter stimulation and you need more and more to get the same effect. So I, that's why I wanted to throw in that little caveat because even though, Yes, it is recommended that women take a lower dose. I still see, and I don't know if this is because they were on it so long, they were never adjusted in their dose or because they've been on it so long, they've been tapered up to the higher dose. Yeah. But still, there is definitely a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I know I'm glad you interjected with that because this is your wheelhouse. But I had a client recently who'd been on Ambien for 17 years. She's in her late 30s. So since college, she'd been on Ambien. And her dose, her dose was sort of like, I think five milligrams. So she she was, um, you know, in that, I guess, normal range of, but she, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like there are just so many people out there that are given Ambien and they're just taking it ongoing. Because if you look at the package insert, it's not designed, the, the pills were not designed to be long-term. I believe no. the, the verbiage in the package insert states they're to be used for two to three weeks. Yeah. So, and, I mean, it's the same with benzodiazepines, but yeah. people are on them for decades. Yeah. And once they're on them, they very rarely come off Yes, with intention they want to, and they figure out a way and a support system to do that. Right. So I feel like because primary care doctors they've only gotten about two hours of like sleep science training in medical school. So I understand how this all plays out because somebody comes to them with insomnia. They don't know about CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. They don't know how to administer it. 
they don't um, they don't have the toolkit really to help a client with or a patient with insomnia. And so it's so much easier to write a prescription. And it's actually okay. I mean, in my opinion, it's okay to prescribe Ambien for a specific reason. There's a trap, there's a death, there's a divorce, there's a job loss, and someone needs just that crutch, you know, for a couple weeks. But what the problem is, is that the physicians are not typically coming up with an exit strategy for the, for the patient. Right. And they're not saying, okay, this is how long you take it. And this is, you know, how you're going to get off of it. It just becomes like a revolving door. And this is why many of my clients end up on a benzo or an, an Ambien for 20 years because the yeah. doctor didn't sort of like nip it in the bud in the beginning when it was supposed to have happened. Yeah. And honestly, too, I don't really even know if they're trained on how to take people off of them. No, I don't think they are. I, I mean, I don't. as pharmacists, we are a little bit. And yeah. I've taken many clients off of, you know, like weaned them and worked with them and had them in the in communication with their physicians the whole time, you know, but just, you know, with SSRIs, benzos, Ambien, like there's many medications out there that you don't want to just stop cold turkey. Right. Um. So that's why I was... I, uh, you know, impressed that, I mean, and it's probably your background in the pharmaceutical sales that you knew to taper and not just. Right. Exactly. So that's a good thing. (laughs) Yes. I did learn something in those years of selling Um, those drugs. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I do want to back up a little bit and let's talk about like why so many women, especially in midlife, start to suffer with poor sleep. Yeah. So women in midlife have it really rough with sleep. So typically you'll find about 50% ish of women in midlife struggling with their sleep. And so there's sort of like three main buckets of reasons why they are having trouble. The first one is kind of obvious. So hormones, the progesterone and the estrogen fluctuating and then declining over time. So that can really wreak havoc on our sleep. Second thing is, is that mental health uh, disorders, um, specifically anxiety and depression tend to be more present with women, especially in midlife. And sometimes we find that, um, when we have anxiety and depression, we become more vulnerable to insomnia. Mm -hmm. And then sort of the last reason why women are struggling more in midlife is because at this time in our lives, our forties and fifties, we have so many competing demands on our time. So I call us the sandwich generation, because if you look at like, you know, maybe a 45 year old woman, she could potentially have a child at home that she's still in charge of taking care of. She could Mm -hmm. also have an elderly parent who is needing care, needing rides. They could be at their end of end of their life. And that's can be time consuming to take care of them at that stage. And then on top of all that, she could potentially be at the top of her career game as a manager or as a business leader. So with all of those competing demands, you can imagine the stress and anxiety level can really reach a pretty high level at that time in their lives. So all of these different multi-layer, multi-faceted reasons can kind of pile up on each other. And we end up with just a really unfortunate situation with sleep disruption. Yeah. And, or I will also add on to that, like dealing and, or trying to cope with your own diagnoses 
which you sounds like you've been through more than once. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So as, as we get older, you know, sometimes we'll find that our diagnoses of breast cancer and other, you know, chronic diseases will increase. And so you're right. Exactly. Well, well said those can definitely impact, um, our sleep as well. So we kind of already talked about sleeping pills that yes, they, they can have a place in therapy for a short-term acute use, um, to get you through, be cognizant about like when that time period has passed. And then, you know, let's talk about how sort of we help ourselves not get on that train of long-term use. So to me, this is comes in with sleep hygiene and routines. Um, How do you see that? Yeah. So I think there are many, many things that we need to look at. So sleep hygiene is really important. And I think probably most of your audience knows a bit about sleep hygiene, but just kind of the basics are, you know, watching your caffeine and alcohol intake before bed, not having heavy meals before bed, um, not using electronics before bed, having a wind down routine, you know, some of the the really basic things about sleep. And I look at sleep hygiene as sort of like kind of brushing your teeth, right? It's a way to, to potentially prevent a cavity kind of like sleep hygiene is a potential way to prevent insomnia. Mm -hmm. Um, but once you have insomnia, unfortunately sleep hygiene, isn't really going to cut it. So that's when we move into more um, advanced types of techniques, really uh, specifically the the area that I work in is uh, CBTI. It's cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That's Mm -hmm. a really evidence-based approach to dealing with insomnia. It's been around since the 1980s. And like we kind of touched on earlier, a lot of um, primary care physicians aren't familiar with it and they don't know how to administer it. And there's another layer to it in that there are not many practitioners out there who are administering it. So people who administer it are usually um, behavioral sleep medicine uh, folks, and they are, um, they're, they're scarce. They're not that many out there. So if you look at the population of people who have insomnia, which is roughly 10 to 30% of our population, there aren't enough behavioral sleep medicine specialists to go around to help all these people. Mm So we, there are a lot of um, self-help books about CBTI and um, some sleep coaches um, are doing it. Um, I'm doing it. I have been taking uh, extra courses, extra courses on how to do that. I'll be taking one um, soon by one of the, the doctors um, who is kind of a a pioneer in it to learn more. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to say that all sleep coaches do CBTI, but I think all are somewhat familiar with the principles. Um, so there are different ways to, to get CBTI, but I just feel like the entry point to getting CBTI is often the primary care provider and they're just unaware or don't know who to refer to. Okay. So can you give us a little bit more background about what that looks like or sure. what is, you know, like as a client or a patient? Yes. So, what it entails. So CBTI is um, a methodology that has different sort of like different menu items and you can choose sort of different menu items and have or choose all of them. So 
part of a small part of uh, CBTI is sleep hygiene and education, but that alone is not going to um, solve the issue. You have to do other things on top of it. So we're mainly looking at behavioral things to do and cognitive things to do. Hence the cognitive behavioral, the behavioral things are, they really carry more weight for most people. They, they're sort of like the, um, the heavy hitters. And so the behavioral things are, um, there are two main ones. One is called stimulus control. And that is, I mean, these are such clinical cold terms, but mm-hmm. essentially, essentially what they need a rebrand of these terms in, in my opinion, <laughs> but uh, essentially what that is, is um, not doing anything in your bed other than sleep and intimacy. Mm-hmm. So when, what we see a lot of times people who have insomnia, this is a lot describes a lot of my clients is that they wake up in the middle of the night two or 3 a.m., they can't fall back asleep. Instead of just lying in bed, they're stewing. What I instruct them to do is to get out of bed, take themselves away from the stressful situation because we want to ultimately unpair the bed and stress. The mm-hmm. bed, we want the bed to be linked in their brain with sleep. So essentially we're kind of retraining their brain by having them get up out of bed and go to another room and dim light and do something pleasant and relaxing until they feel sleepy again, in which point they get back into bed and try to sleep again. So that's, it's a really, it's a very um, simple time. Not, it's not always easy, but it's a simple kind of direction to give people. Um, The other thing is called, um, it's called sleep restriction. And it's again, a terrible, terrible name because people imagine themselves having less sleep when they're like, wait a minute, I'm already not getting a lot of sleep. You want me to sleep less? So that's not really what, what happens. So I like to call it, um, uh, bedtime restriction, or, um, there's just other ways of calling of, of terming it, but essentially what ends up happening with a lot of people who have insomnia is that they are spending a lot of time in bed only to produce a certain amount of hours of sleep. So for example, they could be spending nine hours in bed only to get six hours of sleep. So Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is we're trying to match their time in bed with the actual amount of time they're producing sleep. So it's, it's, it's sometimes we are having them stay up much later to really kind of boost their, their sleep drive to get that Mm -hmm. um, sleep drive really, really solid. Because what we find is that a lot of times people who have insomnia will go to bed extra early to try to catch more sleep and it ends up backfiring on them. Mm -hmm. And what we also want to do is we want to really look at their wake time. We want to keep that wake time really consistent day in and day out, even on the weekends. And this is, this goes for everybody just to have a W A I T wake. Wake. Like, like wait, awake, wake. Yes. Sorry. Yes. W-A-K-E. Okay. Yes. <laughs> waste yes. time. Okay. Wake. Yeah. <laughs> like, so <laughs> we really want to, regardless of if you have insomnia, it's really important to um, keep your wake time consistent because when your wake time is consistent, it's really going to strengthen your circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. So um, those are sort of the behavioral components of CBTI. The cognitive components really are about cognitive restructuring. So for example, somebody might um, have this cognitive distortion that I must get eight hours of sleep or I'm going to get sick. So what we really try to do is try to not make it a Pollyanna situation where they're just like flipping the script to make it all sunshine and roses, but we're really trying to help 
them see sleep in a more realistic way. So for example, someone might say um, to me, you know, I I had a really rough night of sleep and I'm probably going to get fired at work today. Right. So that's Mm -hmm. a, that's a really catastrophizing statement. So what we do is we help kind of modify the statements to be more realistic. We're not saying to them, okay, just sit, tell your, tell yourself you're going to have an awesome day and everything's going to be peachy keen, but we really want to be more realistic and say, okay, I might not perform at my maximum today. I might not like knock it out of the park, but I'm not going to get fired because if they think back on their history to all the other nights, they haven't slept well, they've actually performed pretty decently the next day, but they're just in the moment, they're just sort of kind of like their brain is just not thinking in a way that's super rational about it. So there's a lot of, um, you know, thought work and and restructuring thoughts that goes into it. Um, it, it's a process that, you know, you're essentially t- retraining your brain and that can take a while that can take, right. you know, uh, a month, two months, three months. It depends on the person and how receptive they are and how long they've had insomnia, you know, lots of different factors, but it's a pretty robust type of um, way to deal with insomnia. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, Ooh, it's I like pretty, it. Pretty evidence ba- backed. Yeah. So what is more important quality or quantity when it comes to sleep? They're both important, but I would say the quality rules out over quantity. So I would rather see somebody get six and a half hours of really good quality sleep than eight hours of uh, broken sleep that wasn't refreshing. And what do we consider quality? Do we need to know exactly how long we spent in deep sleep versus REM or whatever, or is it just amount like I feel waking up rested? Yeah. So there, there are a few different variables in there. I think the main one that we want to focus in on is how do we feel in the morning? Do we wake up feeling relatively refreshed? Are we able to go throughout our day without relying on massive caffeine hits? You know, we're also Mm -hmm. looking at things, um, sleep related. We're looking at like sleep efficiency, like how long how much of the night are they actually spending asleep? Um, That's a sleep efficiency um, percentage. We're looking at um, how, how long it takes them to get to sleep, you know? So if you're frequently taking longer than a half an hour to get to sleep, that can be an issue and that can cut down on your, um, on your quality. Also wake-ups, you know, if you're having multiple wake-ups and you can't get back to sleep, that's impacting your quality. Um, so there's, there's a few different quality measures, but what I really like to, to help my clients understand is how you feel. And the next day is a better barometer of your quality than saying, you know, you, you touched on earlier, um, REM, REM scores and deep scores. Like, you know, this is where the sleep trackers can kind of be a blessing and a curse it gives us some good data, but for people who have insomnia and they only see 10% deep sleep, they're like, oh my gosh you know, that's really terrible. So we have to yeah. kind of remember if we're looking at a sleep tracker that the the deep and the REM phases are not always accurate. They're about 50% accurate. So um, we don't want to get too bogged down in those numbers. They're just kind of, a, a we just kind of want to use them as a general guide. Yeah. Is it true that women have more sleep issues than men? Yes. So according to different studies and different surveys, um, women are probably about two times more likely to have insomnia for some Mm -hmm. of the reasons we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there was a recent poll in 2021 saying that women were one and a half times more likely to report that they woke up rarely or never feeling rested. So the statistics show that women are struggling with sleep more, but I do want to throw a little caveat. I heard this, I heard a sleep doctor say this recently, and it, there's some merit to it. Um, and that is that men typically don't disclose these kinds of things as readily as women. There's still sort of that kind of masculine toughen up, you know, ideology with some men that they're not going to admit to having problems like this. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, if men were to say to, to really share that they were having sleep problems, maybe we would see a more equal ratio, but from what we know now, just from the surveys that are done, women are definitely struggling more with sleep for sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, um, what, are there specific routines that you recommend both in the morning and the evening to help optimize sleep? Well, I really strongly believe in the value of morning and evening routines. And I do have a free mini course that people can take on my website that goes in depth with this, but sort okay, of, cool. you know, sort of what I, my, my take on it is that morning routines. So let me back up and say that there's a lot of, um, sort of emphasis on the 5am club. You know, I see this a lot. Like people are like being the 5am club and get to the gym at five o'clock. And they've got like this full like litany of things they're doing at five o'clock AM. Oh. And it's, um, it's not necessarily like when I, when I talk about having a morning routine, I'm not necessarily talking about early morning routine. So I think just we, whenever you wake up, yeah, just whenever you wake up, yeah, I feel like it's really important to have, you know, a couple things kind of lined up. So one of them is really the strongest thing is getting natural daylight exposure, natural sunlight exposure as soon as possible after you wake up um, and without your sunglasses. <laughs> when mm-hmm. I walk my dogs in the morning, you know, around 7 a.m., I see a lot of people in the neighborhood with their sunglasses on walking their dogs. And the reason why we don't want to wear sunglasses is because when the, the natural sunlight, the natural daylight hits our retina, it sends this signal to our suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is our circadian pacemaker. And when that happens, there's this beautiful cascade of hormones and neurotransmitters that happen. So any residual melatonin from the night before gets shut down, it increases our dopamine, our serotonin, Mm -hmm. our cortisol for energy. And it also kind of prepares our melatonin production for the upcoming night. So we're getting a lot of really robust benefits from just 10 minutes of sunlight exposure in the morning. And you're not having to look directly in the sun. You just don't want to have your eyes covered with a sun. So that's really the, the, the key kind of cornerstone of a morning routine is just prioritizing that, that natural light. I think the other thing to really consider is to have some kind of intentional practice or intentionality to your morning to kind of ground yourself what my little mini course goes through this, but and ideas to do it. But the whole premise is that, you know, how you start your day is how you live your day. And that's a quote by Louise Hay. And I really, I really take that to heart because if our days start off in a very chaotic manner, 
that can really spill over into the day and spill over to the night, which then impacts your, your ability to fall asleep. So whatever sort of grounding intentional practice you can, that, that feels good for you. That's aligned to you is something that I think that everyone can do. And I respect the fact that, you know, a lot of people out there listening have jobs and kids and responsibilities that they have to manage in the morning. But even if you just have five or 10 minutes, you know, take that time for yourself to just to get grounded and centered before you start the, the daily grind. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, women have this tendency to overgive and to be completely checked out of our bodies, our lives, our thoughts, our feelings, you know, all the things. And I think that is, I think it starts, like you said, as soon as you wake up and you're immediately running, I'm running to go get my kids up or I'm running to, you know, like make my coffee and get out the door without saying, stopping and saying, how do I want to feel today? Yes. You know, what do I want my day to look like? How do I want to show up today? Yes. And, and just those little questions, that's enough to ground you. Mm-hmm. Because when you start mm-hmm. asking yourself that you have to you, it's like you can't ask those questions and not check in and go inside at least a little bit. And when you set that, um, that precedent or you know uh for the day then you're more likely when maybe you get triggered in the middle of your day you're more likely to say oh wait hey wait when I started today I wanted to feel this way or I wanted to show up in this way and just because I'm triggered now does that mean I need or have to react I can you know I can do something different show up think something different you know so it's it, it again it seems small and maybe oversimplified, but it can be so powerful. So I would say those extra five to 10 minutes are totally worth it. Wake up just a little bit earlier before anyone else is awake, even to give yourself that quiet yes. time to to check in and, yes. and make those decisions for you. You get yeah. to decide. I think we forget that we get to decide. So many of the yes. times I think we say, oh, I have to do this and I have to do that. Well, actually we're choosing mm-hmm. we get ourselves in the situation where we might have to, but that still links back to a choice that we made. Exactly. So, you know, I think yeah. it brings the power back to yeah. us. I, I So well said. I, I had a client recently who um, we were going over her morning routine and basically she had really no morning routine. She would get up out of bed. She would immediately get dressed. She might grab a cup of coffee on the way out to door, the door by the time from waking up to, it took her about probably, she was at work within 30 minutes. I mean, there was literally no time for, she did. I don't want to say there was no time. She did not make time. So when we were working together, we actually designed a really intentional morning routine for her. And it made such a difference for her and the way that she handled stressors at work and how Mm -hmm. those stressors spilled out into the evening and, and would, you know, disrupt her sleep if she was yeah. having that d- d- that stressful day. So it just, I mean, I've seen it time and again, play out in real life and practice the, the value mm-hmm. of just that intentionality and everybody is so individual. So what might work for you might not really jive for me. So we all have to kind of design our own and kind of come up with what works for us. Yeah. For me, I'm a morning meditator and morning movement person. Mm -hmm. So, and I say movement because 
it could be a workout or it could be yoga or it could be a dog walk, but, um, you know, so it could be inside or outside my workout movement space inside is in my sunroom. So I still get light in there, even though it's coming through a window. But, um, you know, I started this prop, this routine for myself when I was working graveyards and we already, I mean, we can talk a little bit about shift work and how, you know, that wreaks havoc on your body and your sleep cycle and all those things. But I found that if I woke up and I did those two things at minimum, even if I didn't make time to have food, you know, I could do that on the run, but at least those two things would help prepare me for the rest of the day. Well, then I shift over to working a 7 a.m. shift, which I had never in my life ever considered or called myself a morning person. But in order to make it to work on time, I live an hour away, you know, so you have to wake up. And but I also found that if I did it at the beginning, you know, when you're like making a big shift like that, sometimes your routines don't necessarily fall immediately in line. So right. some days I would do my things and some days I wouldn't. And I found that the days I wouldn't, my mood and how I showed up was completely off. Yes. And so I'm like, okay, these are priorities. I need to go back to doing these. These are non-negotiables. And that's what, you know, people are like, how do you wake up at 4.30 or 5? And I say, because I have my non-negotiables, I have to meditate. I have to move. And ideally, I'd like to have space in my day to get all my things ready without technicness and like that high stress level so early in the morning. Most of us have a job that is stressful enough. We don't need to add that extra stress to ourselves. And we are doing it without realizing it, I think. And so also by implementing these routines and this regularity, we can be more aware and cognizant of the extra stress that we're putting on ourselves that then maybe once we're aware, we can choose to not do that. Yes. So well said. So well said. Yeah. That consistency is so, so key. And I, I, I can really relate to what you said about if, if my morning routine gets disrupted for some weird circumstance and I'm not able to do a certain portion of that routine, and that's usually movement or sunlight. I don't feel right. I don't feel centered the rest of the day. And I just feel off, you know, it just really, it really impacts me. So I'm very protective of that morning time. Very protective. Yeah. Um, And I think I, you know, I'm not a parent, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that even if our kids see us having these routines and you know, being very intentional with our self-care time and our self-care boundaries, then I think I would like to think that hopefully that would rub off on them and that 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 could even be like, you know, some really positive trickle down, yeah. you know, instead of like, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and, you know, I saw my, I'm a product of what I was raised by, you know, so I saw my parents, you know, rushing around in the morning you know, quick, quick, hurry up, eat, we got to get out the door, you know, all the things. And so it's, it took me, you know, years before I realized, wait, I don't have to do that. And I actually enjoy my mornings when I'm not in that space. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a parent either, but I, I, my intuition tells me that if we are modeling those very intentional behaviors, it will rub off on our, on children eventually. And they'll see that we can kind of take our time if we need to in the morning and just be, be more intentional. Yeah. Yes. Enjoy ourselves no matter what time of day it is. Yes. (laughs) So uh, you mentioned the course. 
on yes. your website. Can you tell yes. us about that? And then any other thing like where to find you and all those good things? Yeah. So this mini course is really designed as sort of like the first step to help people with their sleep, because I'm such a believer in the power of that anchor, those anchors of the morning and the evening routine. And it's, it's a very, um, it's a short course that people can take and just get some pretty, um, pretty practical um, suggestions to implement, to get started on a routine, it gives them a lot of ideas um, and strategies on how to, to, you know, get better sleep through these routines. Um, so I've got that. And I also offer to anyone who's interested and in, in, is struggling with sleep, something called a sleep clarity call, which is when you, uh, we, you and I chat on zoom or a call and you share some of your sleep struggles. And I share with you back some potential ways that you could mitigate those struggles, maybe talk about root cause, why they're happening and a couple of strategies to get back on track. So I love to talk to people about their sleep. So don't be shy. If you want to chat with me that maybe you could share that link. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And then on the socials, social media. Yes. I'm on, very active on Instagram doing reels and stories on the regular. So my handle <laughs> there is uh, morganadams.wellness. Um, feel free to DM me and say hello. Um, yeah, those are the places where I'm most active. I'm kind of active on LinkedIn and I'm Morgan Adams on LinkedIn. And yeah, those are the places to find me and chat about sleep. And, and, um, I'll share some resources on, on these channels that hopefully are, you know, going to help you get better sleep and, you know, be healthier overall. Excellent. Well, anything else that we haven't talked about that do you want to bring forward before we finish up? I think we've covered a lot, but I think what I'd like to just sort of say in closing is that there are so many things we can do to help our sleep that are free and simple. And mm -hmm. so I really suggest that people start with the basics, the foundationals, the free things before they do the biohacks, because like the biohacks are sexy. They're, they're, you know, they're interesting. They're, they're unique, but if we don't have those basics dialed in first, the biohacks are kind of a waste of our time and money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, I, yeah. I tell my patients the same thing, even when it comes to testing, you know, in functional medicine, you can do, oh my gosh, so many of these, you know, crazy tests that can really show you very unique things about your body and your biology, but is it always necessary? Is it going to change what we're doing? So let's set a good foundation first uh, yeah, I love that you said that. You're like, start with the basics, start with your foundation, start with your routines, all that good stuff. And then if we're still having challenges, then we can go do like the, maybe the more complicated or like you said, biohacking things. Yes. Yes. Um, the, sometimes more expensive. Like, if, you know, like that's some, usually when we get into like the, oh, okay, this is where we're going to spend money now. Right. And be, and be selective, you know. Yeah. There's no, there's no shame. And I mean, I, I personally have a cooling mattress pad. It is the best money I've spent on my sleep and I've done, mm. but, but I have done all the other foundational basic things first. And yeah. this was just an add on because I'm in perimenopause and I sleep hot sometimes. So it, it's worth the money. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm going to give, say something and then I, you could wag your finger at me, but I let my dog sleep in the bed with me. <gasps> me too. No well, shame. and I love them. No I'm not, like I said, I, I'm a, not a human mom, but I am a four-legged animal yes. mom. 
Um, but they are little heaters and I'm a yes. warm person too. So I bought a sleep or not a um, cooling blanket, uh-huh. but I don't really know. Maybe I should go with the cooling pad. Cause maybe that would like help more. Definitely. You know? It's an upgrade. It's an upgrade. <laughs> I love that you brought that up. Yeah. So also don't be afraid to like, yeah, do some, whatever, you know, you need to do to make your sleep space you know, like that, like you said, like associating the bed with sleep only, but also like if your room is too bright, you know, how much other light is coming in? Do you have too much blue light or, you know, like, do you need blackout curtains? Is the room too hot in general? Do you maybe need a fan to like, you know, quiet down any background noise that could come through and wake you up? There's a lot of things that you can do to like, I call it my sleep cave. I call my bedroom, my, my yes, sleep cave. <laughs> that's that's exactly, Lara, that's exactly what we want our bedrooms to be like. We want them to be like a cave, cool, dark, and quiet. So I think you, what you're saying is really r- important is take a, do a bedroom audit. Yeah. Is, you know, yeah. is a short way of saying it's just take, take stock in what's going on around you and your bedroom surroundings. You may find things that are not in alignment. And you may have to make some adjustments. And some of them are really pretty easy to make, by the way. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Morgan. I appreciate your expertise and all the work that you're doing. Um, it was really fascinating to hear more about the cognitive behavioral therapy aspect of this. Um, so that's definitely something that I think uh, hopefully will pique some curiosity and people can look more into that and see if it's right for them. I'm going to post all of your website and social stuff on the show notes page, which is on my website, drlaramay.com forward slash podcast. That's where all these episodes and show notes live. So definitely reach out to Morgan. Take advantage of that 20 minute. It was a sleep clarity sleep, call. That's exactly right. Yeah. Sleep clarity call. Um, because even if you two decide that you're not, you know, copacetic to work together, like I'm sure you'll still get some benefit out of that and things that you can implement and to move forward and try out. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, yeah, well, you know, as, as your um, research and, um, and practice grows, like I'm happy to have you back to keep talking about this because I'm sure just like with so many other things, we keep learning. We're like more and more and more, we're starting to uncover more of, you know, the behavioral side, the cognitive side, the biological side, uh, so it's, and that's why I do this is to bring this information forward as the research and the practices are improving. Yeah. Thank you for all you do, Lara. It's wonderful. <laughs>